0: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Simon Reynolds and Dean Wareham.
1: Hello. Hi there. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's nice to see you, Simon. Simon, you inter- you interviewed me um, about twenty five years ago.
2: Yes. Uh, for melody.
1: For what was it for? Uh, melody. Maker. It was for Melody Maker. Thank you for doing that. It was, and we took the photo where? At your apartment, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, know, somewhere. Uh,
2: next to the radiator in our apartment, our tiny East Village apartment. Um, in 90, yeah, 1990, wasn't it? I think That sounds so, right. Oh,
1: 89. Um, help, 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 help. I was... Um, there was a Paul Simon was in, interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, by the, the BBC, and they asked him about David Bowie's passing. And he said, uh, David Bowie spent more time thinking about what he would look like or what character he would inhabit than he did thinking about the song. <laughs> and um, a lot of people um, got mad at him on Facebook. <laughs> but um, uh, do you think, uh, w- would David Bowie actually object to that characterization? Or is it is it inaccurate? Um,
2: I think um, I think he'd probably run with it. He'd probably... You'd probably make hay with it and say that um, uh, all those things are are just as important as the music. And Lady Gaga, in fact, um, went the next step and said that the music was just a distraction from her visual presentation and her videos. So she sort of took it to the next step of sort of... um, Attacking, uh, you know, turning around The rockish sort of uh, Substance is more important than all the other stuff and what, what do, you,
1: what do you, you call her In the book, the, the fame monster
2: Oh, or, she that's what she called herself oh, she calls herself yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, that no.
1: That's what
0: so I thought about That,
2: that she, she Kind of identified the desire for fame As this sort of monstrous urge um, And she, I think She's really quite An interesting thinker in that sense Much more than she is a musician, really, um, but uh, I think you know one of the things with um, well, It's Paul Simon? You said said that, yes. right? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Paul Simon does not pay a lot of attention to no, to and, and appearance, I think, clothing. It's not really fair, visuals, is it? Visuals, you know, <laughs> the whole thing. So he's making a virtue of of uh, you know, um, yes, it's unavoidable there. Um, I think you know one of the things. Um, the, my book, book starts with um, me talking about Top of the Pops, this English show, which is where I sort of encountered glam and really pop music, all you know, altogether. Apart from the Beatles, though, I'd probably seeped out into the everyday life, and I picked up as like a six-year-old. Um, it was, you know, it was an audiovisual experience right at the start, and that's kind of what I'm talking yeah, no, about this seems book, like is book that, is you know, pop music is, you know, it's never, never pop music has never been just about the music um, it's always been about image, it's been about um, um, stage gestures and movements the performance aspect, clothes uh, it's also been, you know, what people say in interviews, it's like a, a great blurry mess of of, of of ideas and concepts and um, visual stuff and packaging and, and hype, all these things are part of pop music um, and music has always been, you know, a, a crucial component, maybe the indispensable component, but it's, it's, uh, it's not the only thing no. that that people are excited about or that you can think about. And so, you know, with this book, I, 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 it's it's quite a departure for me in a way because I'm paying attention to these things more than I've done before. Yeah, it's, it
1: seems like it's it's as much about fashion as it is about uh, music.
2: Well it's also about, you know, I I, I was thinking um, the other day. Uh, my early writing, the people I interviewed uh, when I wrote up the interview would appear as, as these sort of disembodied minds, you know, like they, they li- live in this kind of cloud of sound and concepts. Uh, and in this book, I've actually done more like describing how people look. You know, I actually had to write about Mark Bowen's smile. It's a crucial part of, of the p- appeal of T-Rex. It's not just the records. It's this amazing smile that Mark Bowen had this sort of... Uh, t- kind of weird twinkling magical smile that he had that sort of was part of how he bewitched right. his audiences and how he charmed everyone and he knew its power um, but that didn't uh, you know that didn 't prevent him from uh, that didn 't make himself conscious about it. he just unleashed it you know right in the course of his conquering of the world and then um, you know so i 'm also talking about you know bodies and and uh, stage moves and things like that that are sort of um, that kind of a new area for me to talk about right. in a way because i've tended to write about sort of more underground music or um you know with rave music it actually was like virtually the visual side of it apart from the lights and things it's you know, you non-existent d- you d- well a lot of those people you never even saw their photograph right the techno people whereas with you know with glam it's all about people's faces and
1: and their clothes Right, you have a quote from Bolin in the, in the Mark Boland. He says, 95% of my success is the way I look. Yeah. And the music is secondary. I mean, it admits You do have to have good music. But initially, it's got nothing to do with music. I mean, I think that's
2: a slight overstatement. There are loads of examples of, of groups where it's all the image and there's nothing. To no, to get up played up on the radio, yeah, you have to have yeah,
1: something more than the look, obviously. But it's,
2: def- it's definitely like... Um, uh, it's a... Almost like a fifty fifty thing I think that's why I stress this sort of audio visual aspect but right. but I think it's actually part of uh, the appeal of all kinds of music you know there's something about um uh, I think the way indie bands look is part of their sort of the connection made with their audience you know I think it's with 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 all music um you know some you know something about the way Hus- husker do look <laughs> uh, yeah. actually kind of meant something to their fans it was like a protest against pop in a way wasn't it yes and the replacements did a video where only you can only see a hand you'll you see the
1: hand putting the, but, the, but the, yeah, the, the record on yeah,
2: there they don't even appear in the video at all. Right. so that's you know there's some kind of visual rhetoric. Yeah, going I, on. I
1: mean, if I think back to like the, the like the years Galaxy Five Hundred first started out, uh, we were like deeply suspicious of like bands say like the Godfathers because they all wore, wore suits. was like, yeah. you know, and uh, you weren't really in. The, you weren't supposed to dress up in indie bands, and also maybe it's an American thing as against an English thing that you know American males are nuts. Don't generally. Peacock as much.
2: Well, I think um, it, not it, white it ones. It depends anyway. on the, the, the scene. It depends on yeah. The lights, I think. I mean. I think. especially Night Fever. I mean, if you think of that, that's yeah. quite peacocky. And that's, that's quite sort of Flashy. <laughs> yeah. Fast. So. Um, yeah, it, it depends. But certainly in the the indie alternative tradition, um, there's less emphasis on. Sartorial splendor. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you weren't allowed to. No, all i You look at all the bands from the nineties, from you know, pavement to side, and then the the grunge, that grunge yeah. era too, where it's just hideous, yeah. bad, bad clothes. Mm-hmm. There weren't there weren't any nice jeans to buy like there are today. <laughs> yeah. But um, you start out the book with um with what what came before glam, the unglam. Right. Yes. Well, the immediate.
2: Um, the re- the reason why glam sort of works as a as a gesture and why it had some sort of age, uh, uh, I guess, or some kind of feeling it's a new thing in the early seventies was that it was preceded by this period when um, when rock got very kind of dressed down, very sort of uh, grown up as well in its orientation. It was a time when all the musicians of you know uh, who had been pop stars in the early um, 60s, early to mid 60s. They all grew beards. They all, yes. so the, a lot of the them were getting, uh, you know, settling down or, he- or at least heading into a phase of life when their concerns were not sort of teenage concerns and r- writing these, you know, serious grown-up albums um, and losing interest in in um, in the art of the pop single and. Um, just not really moving around much on stage, you know. There's, so the sort of totemic records of that period would have been uh, the first two albums by the band. Um, I don't know, Blind Faith, Ormond uh, Brothers, who like you know um, had so little interest in the art of the single that one of their one of their tracks starts on side one of an album and then continues on side two. Of, right, and um, you know, so the, uh, the, the single sales is, uh, in Britain actually really plummeted in 1970 I think it was, it only took like about 100,000 single sales to get in the top 10, uh, it just was not where the energy of the culture was at and, and there was this thing um, uh, in the UK they call it the underground basically it was like progressive rock, hippie rock country rock, same same in this country, it was you know FM radio music uh, and uh, there was a college circuit uh, in both countries, but particularly in the UK, it was um, all the uh, all the college se- uh, entertainment secretaries had all this money to play with because right. all the students had to pay their dues to the National Union of Students, so they could book all these bands. It became this thing. Had, it was like bands like Soft Machine, all these sort of you know actually some of the many in- very interesting groups that I like. But it was not pop music. It was. Um, it was not show. It had no showbiz element at all. It was very sort of people performed on stage in this very kind of inward-focused way, like selling, sewing away these long solos, jamming, and uh, and yes, not many great pop singles. And glam kind of reversed that. It was sort of um, very much about you know looking good, being entertaining on stage, and this. Drastic reorientation back to the seven-inch single. And so within, a f- within about a year of T-Rex and Slade and, and The Suite taking off, it, it, to get in the top ten, it took a half a million single sales. Right. Uh, like five times as many. So s- singles became like the centre of the scene. And, uh, and the other thing it was a, it was a return to sort of music, rock and roll that you could dance to. All the groups of uh, of glam were... Um, whether it was with his sort of kind of boogies these groovy little songs like Bang a Gong um, or it was Slade with their very sort of stomping strident beat the Sweet with their amazingly sort of produced uh, really powerful drum sounds on tracks like "Ballroom and Blitz uh, really across the board it was all music, it was rock and roll to dance to uh, it was rock and roll to scream to because it had these sort of uh, cute uh, fun men um, and you know, it was something to
1: magazines too.
2: Right, yeah, and there was right. a boom of teenage magazines. So yeah, it was a, you know, it was like a it was a return of t- uh, teen power really as a consumer force in pop music, and that's why the Swede did, did this song "Teenage Rampage," which was kind of like a sort of tribute to uh, the demographic consumer uh, what might that had been flexed by the teenagers who were, had this sort of pent up consumer demand for 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 sort of
1: pop music, right. Uh, for fun. there yeah, you also mentioned that, that glam is a movement uh, that grows out of a, a, a period of, of defeat and, and disillusionment, in a way, yeah. As a, coming after, say, the, yeah. the the hippie era of uh, yeah. of hope and social action. That, that instead, with the glam there's a retreat uh, into a personal quest for. Yeah,
2: yeah. The the orientation of the underground, you know, was um, was much more collective, and it was uh, you know trying to sort of uh, change things on a mass level. And then what happens is that people who actually participated in the the counterculture, uh, including Bolan and Bowie, sort of read really you know they they spent a good couple of years in the late '60s mouthing uh, a lot of the pieties of of hippie culture, and, and mm-hmm. you know, Boen would would be would say things like i 'm not really interested in in singles, and i don 't really want to do interviews and i 'm not interested in publicity you know within, within a couple of years he 's got like seven or eight number one singles under his belt he 's doing every pub interview he possibly can, and it, the, basically they decide to sort of break for stardom you know right. and i don 't I think you know i don 't know how much both Mar Bolin and Dave ever really sort of believed in the the counterculture where they just thought it was like a sort of what people were doing what the people were doing where where it was the forum or the arena in which to sort of make a name for themselves and, right and, but Bolan in, in Tyrannosaurus Rex is is uh, the precursor to T-Rex was very much like going along with what was hot like the incredible string band he was like you know playing an acoustic guitar sitting cross-legged on stage mm-hmm. singing right. about elves and yes. fairies and stuff like that you know uh, kind of you know genuine interest of his I think he was a big fan of right. Tolkien but you know very much like you know no I'm I'm not interested in
1: being a star and then, then when think. it comes
2: T-Rex all of a
1: sudden he's writing about motor cars
2: and yeah, star, right. it's still a bit kind of um, uh, fairy magic yeah. magical mystical stuff but yeah he's writing um, you know he's singing about like uh, I drive a Rolls Royce because it's good for my voice yes uh, very much sort of inventing bling Right. of, you know, decades in advance um, uh, so yeah, well, it's it's one of the things with Glam is that it's you know, it reflects a desire for stardom but also stardom and fame become like one of its main subjects there's a lot of songs about right. being in a band uh, wanting to be a star or even the costs of, of fame and stardom like right, with uh, Fame by David Bowie
1: I think people... Um uh, in the states, Mark Boland is sort of a, a a marginal figure. He's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is he which, not? Is, which is incredible. Yeah, that's shocking, isn't it? I mean, yeah. neither is Slade or the Sweet or Roxy Music. A lot uh, of the bands that you talk about, Ro- even Roxy, yeah. Oh, right. Uh I mean, it's 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 focused on the American artists, maybe, but but um, yeah, people don't realize how huge hmm. T Rex were. I remember Tony Visconti saying this to me. He's like, I made, you know, I made far more money off of uh, of the T-Rex records because he mm. signed them as well, I guess, but mm. then I did off of David Bowie. David Bowie was a, was a cult artist by comparison. Mm. Yeah, I mean,
2: T-Rex were massive, but they were, you know, the people... One journalist coined this term t rex uh which was, you know, very much like a play on uh, Beatlemania, uh, and th- that was how it was perceived at the time in newspapers and the music press, um, and in the record industry. There was a huge sort of uh, sort of sigh of relief because people w- were waiting for something on that scale to happen. Uh, they wanted that kind of hysteria. They were, there was a concern that all these long, you know, very serious albums that you are supposed to sit sit down to and listen to very seriously that was sort of would lose it younger listeners, and they would just drift off into some other form of hobby or leisure activity altogether, so there was a you know, there was a feeling in the record industry, we need some, you know, mass teen sensation, and T-Rex sort of supplied it, and caused like genuine uh, hysteria at gigs. Right. you know, people badly injuring themselves, and uh, falling off balconies because they were screaming so hard, and that kind of thing, Um and what was what was interesting uh, about um, about *T. Rexy and its relation to *Beatlemania* was that Ringo Starr actually was friend, became friends with Bolan and um, made a documentary, made the, right? made, the, made this film *Born to Boogie*, which is a sort of half electrifying concert footage and then half really embarrassing sort of interlude in the style of *Magical Mystery*. Uh, tour, you know, so uh, like these sort of psych- sub-psychedelic whimsical comedy scenes but Rigo Starr directed it I believe it's his only yeah, film sure. directed but he, you know there was much commented on the fact that he would be filming this footage at these huge concerts uh, you know, in the, uh, the I guess the pit at the bottom of the stage with his film crew and uh, be surrounded by these people these teenagers screaming he just completely paid no attention to Ringo Starr. <laughs> he was—he al- you know, was already history. They didn't know who he was. He was already, yeah. you know. So for Ringo, I think it was interesting because he was observing Beatlemania <laughs> from the outside, as it were. You know, he was—he was, he was witnessing uh, what well, it was like up close, but sort of from the outside, which he'd never, obviously, never done, having Where? lived it from the inside. Um, it's just a shame that the movie is so. <laughs> that's that's uh the, it's worth watching if you could just just watch the concert bits because they are they are amazing. And what's interesting about them is is um, that compared to modern pop music, it isn't that you know glitzy or you know razzle dazzle. It's really Bolan just has like a bit of glitter on his cheekbones and, right. and like a, a, hat. a little purple scarf. Yeah. <laughs> but that is enough to sort of differentiate T Rex from you know from all the drab uh, boogie bands and country rock. A singer songwriter type so far it was that, that just that tiny bit of sparkle that kind of uh, was enough right. he also wore women 's shoes as well they had very small feet and used to get women 's shoes from uh, Davide's of Oxford street in london um, but you know it was these little, little tiny touches these uh, feminising, dandy dandy touches that um, were enough to trigger sort of uh, this mass team you you mentioned
1: in the book that that musically T-Rex is sort of sounds uh, like it's inspired by the 50s but if the 50s had come after the 60s right yeah
2: Um, well I think actually generally with you know uh, with glam um, yeah I've been asked a few times to define it and um, uh, you know one thing is the look you know this sort of um, that's where achieved coherence is a as a as a movement or a a, a scene is is um, the look this sort of ridiculously overstated version right. of glamour and, and very much like you know it's not glamour in the conventional Hollywood sense um, you know they're not the glam stars weren't glamorous in the way say Dina Ross was at that time right. or you know a movie a movie idol it was very much like an absurdist almost a parody of glamour I think or like certainly a cartoon overstated version of it. And the other thing is the sound, which um, is very much like a reversion to the sort of structures of 50s rock and roll uh, and maybe some 60s groups like the Dave Clark Five Beats and Pieces or but The but I mean,
1: Beatles. But the records, uh, the records yeah. still sound great today. They sound modern. Yeah. They don't sound dated at all. So, well, that, they, so well, they sound yeah, le- yeah. less dated than, uh, say... The but, uh, late Buddy '60s, Hollies or the yeah. Buddy Holly, yeah. or yeah. then the, like hi- hippie. Well, that's the other Olympia. thing is
2: they are reverting to these simpler structures and this sort of direct attack and and uh, you know riffs and and big hooks. You know, away from the hippie mushy uh, convoluted sounds of prog rock. But it's they've taken on all the kind of um, production advances of the late '60s and and the early '70s. So the drums sound huge. Um, yeah. Get the guitars are all kind of stacked. The guitar parts are all kind of stacked, and uh, there's a kind of burnish and a polish to the production that's very sort of state of the art. Then, and and still sounds great, as you say. Yeah, you know, I
1: mean, I think if you look at the '70s, even even if it's music you don't like, even if it's songs you don't like, the the recording techniques were great. It's kind of like the, the the peak of it in a way of analog recording. Yes, of analog recording, you've got like. 16-track, one-inch tape, which is probably the best format ever. Yeah. They moved away. And then, because then when you move into the 80s and all of a sudden sounds become unnatural and it's sometimes even hard for us to listen to now. Right. Mm. What, you mean with gated drums and stuff? Yes, because even if you listen to, like, a single by, you know, Bread now, you're like, oh, that sounds, (laughs) that's a beautifully recorded acoustic guitar. (laughs)
2: Well, well, being a musician and a guitarist, you probably have, you know, what what, what would you say would define... um, Glam as a musical style. is there—is there something there? Uh,
1: like well, that? I think it's different for each of these mm, artists, yeah. but I mean, uh, Boland certainly had a great guitar sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned to you there. It's certain like dis- distinctive uh, pedals that were starting to be used. Right then, these, these treble boosters. The amps weren't really distorting on; uh, they weren't loud enough to, uh, on their own, so they were using these. Uh, the tr- travel boosters that you know Ronson used or Tony Iommi or Roger Waters all of them mm. which then disappeared again in the mid 70s when that something else came along but well, you pick up so a German company started reissuing these pedals of, uh, a few years ago and you plug into one of them and you're like oh that's that's the sound right there mm. it's,
2: it's quite it's, to me not not being right. a musician at all or a uh, only having held a guitar a couple of times in my life, <laughs> uh, and deciding it wasn't the path for me. Uh, but um, it seems like it's a very clean, clear sound. Almost like a lot of these rocks you can almost see them. You know, they're so well produced. Yes, and like Mick Ronson's guitar just sounds. Um, it almost sounds as stylized as Bowie's vocals are in a way. Like right as, as, as It's a
1: very specific thing. And he uh, he specifically uses a treble booster and like a a, a wire pedal that he's switched on but then like left with it yeah. left it in a, in a fixed position to like to really like nail this sound, which as you point out, it's it's neither clean nor distorted. It's yeah. Somewhere in sweet. Obviously, the, the the central figure in the in the book is is David Bowie. Yeah. Um, um, through, th- through through his through his ma- many eras, and you mentioned he comes out of he comes out of the era of the rock band that you know the the Kinks, the Stones, the Who, mm. all of those. But he is uh, he's a solo artist, which enables him to go forward uh, very differently.
2: Yeah, that seemed very striking to me that Bowie, um, he's in various groups but he kind of leaves them very quickly Uh, he's very, um, you know one of the things that defines the 60s and what you you might call the British rock achievement is these groups where um, where they're quite like stable structures you know, of all, you know the, The Who, The Stones Beatles, Pink Floyd right. virtually Yardbirds virtually all of them are pretty stable structures uh, you know various members drop out through you, yes, madness you can, you or can drugs repl- you
1: can replace elements but they sort this, of they're, so, they're yeah. like
2: families with emotional discords going on in them that sort of fuel it somehow but they also have musical relationships that grow and that's the basis on which they uh, evolve and, and do such amazing things Bowie didn't ever really join a group as such until the tin machine Uh, Right. (laughs) So that was his attempt to be a rock band. Right. Everything else is—he's the boss, and he's got accomplices, and he was very good at picking accomplices or or foils. But he's—he's in it for himself, really. In a way, there isn't that gang thing, really. You know, that is one of the things with. Your rock band, um, yes. No, and, and when he uh, did it with
1: Tin Machine, it seemed kind of and then absurd. Was,
2: and it's particularly striking, like he's been in various sort of mod-type groups, and then he gets with them all, and he does this record in it's nineteen sixty-seven, right? So if you think of nineteen sixty-seven, uh, you think of what happened in nineteen sixty-seven: Piper the Gates doors. of Dawn, uh, yeah. Sergeant Pepper's, uh, The Doors, the, the first album, Jeff, second Jefferson yeah. album. I mean, it's it's the golden age of the rock album. Rock is come in this monster world force and he puts out an album of sort of comedy songs and little strange little music hall character stuff which is immensely charming, actually it's one of my favourite of his albums but it's so out of step with what's going on he, he, he gets rid of his previous band one guy survives to sort of work on the arrangements and stuff but it's basically like this sort of um, Anthony Newley type uh, record you know, it's, like, it's much more like something to do with music hall or music, musical theatre or right. Uh, comedy pop. There's this British tradition of comedy pop that it almost fits into, where he's playing characters in every song. So he, he's. He. Um, so yeah, anyway, he's, so, yeah,
1: he's, he's, he's not a rock singer, also. You mentioned that. Yeah. I, think I just saw a documentary on a plane, that five years thing, where yeah. someone's asking him, says, Oh, you're a rock singer. He's like, Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, so you made it. that's your mistake, yeah. I'm not a rock singer well, very, he went he on to play dis- one
2: he was very dis- actually quite sniffy about that and quite dismissive of it uh, almost, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why quite a few American rock critics were very suspicious of him in the 70s because he was kind of like making light of rock or, or not, he didn't have the commitment to it that they wanted you know, was expected uh, on the part of American rock fans and rock critics who thought it was the most important thing in the world, you know, and he seemed to be making uh, it's just something I'm I'm doing for a bit, as a, but then I'll do something else, you know. They they found it was dilettantish, and it's you know it's quite interesting to look at how he was received because now he's such a sort of you know canonical figure and a global treasure, but he was he was received with a great deal of uh, suspicion by a lot of critics. Uh, in the right. early seventies, Lester Bangs was very disparaging. You mentioned him. that
1: story yeah. that Alan Willis goes over to yeah. see him and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, and she's like, "Well, you know, Lou and, and Iggy are like uh, real, but Bowie to me is not real."
2: Yeah, um, and that's a, that's actually a common um, uh, what's the word? And I want to say antimony. Uh, you know, an opposition, like a, right. pa- a pairing, right. a conceptual pairing. Iggy, the real thing. Bowie, the unreal thing. Right. Uh, Iggy doing this, you know, Iggy doing this incredible incredibly physical performances that involve really testing and stretching his body to the limits, Uh, and that being a kind of natural theatre, which is actually what Bowie called it, natural theatre, street theatre, Detroit Detroit theatre. And then Bowie being much more like, he studied mime, he'd, you know... He had a background in
1: advertising.
2: Yeah, he'd, he'd, um, you know, wanted to do musicals, he wanted to do cabaret, all this kind of stuff. Um, Which is a little... uh, you know, Iggy was not like a complete feral kind of delinquent being. He was actually a very right. intelligent guy who read uh, Nietzsche and uh, actually went to college for longer than... Well, he gave. never went to college, whereas uh, Iggy actually went to college for about one year, I think. Uh, <laughs> so it wasn't like he was this instinctual half-man, half-neanderthal on stage, you know. It was an, an act that he was doing. But yes, it did seem to have more... Obvious commitment and wildness Than what Bo but is doing I mean, even Bo is playing a role much more right. Like you kind of Try to live out the persona But
1: despite that you can go back and pick Even on the early records A, a song like uh, Letter to Hermione Is that how you say her yeah. name I think Which is, uh, there's a demo of this Floating around YouTube too Which is like a, a beautiful song that is, mm. And it's heartfelt and it's quite sincere Yeah. So I don't know yeah, I mean, I think he
2: drew on his real emotions more than uh, than his rhetoric, which was always that I'm playing a role. Right? <laughs> right. Things that he actually cared about crept into the songs fairly regularly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, um, I think he felt like uh, these roles could be a way of uh, uh, sort of moving around a mm-hmm. lot from... You know, not to be trapped in a sort of persona. Because the whole thing about rock performers is they often get s- stuck with <coughs> the identity yeah. they form, don't they? And then it's hard to sort of, you know, the cycles of fashion mean you're d- disposed of. And uh, uh, so I think that was, his strategy in a way was to outwit that process right. by becoming the new thing constantly.
1: which must have been draining in the yeah in the long term you, you, you yes yeah. perhaps. perhaps, but that's I mean obviously you know Bowie played guitar, saxophone, he taught himself to play yeah. piano w- well at, at one point, but his but maybe you could argue that his his chief instrument is the media right yeah yeah i
2: mean he was a, con- yeah, a consummate um user of publicity uh that's something that kind of um is evident right from the start very very early in his career he did this uh really kind of hilarious thing where um someone someone from the bbc was uh, was looking to do a, an item on a news program about um about the problems of having long hair which was a new oh, yes. there, were, there were there were you know hair that now would be nothing was considered like a couple of inches Onto your shoulder was considered like really subversive and and uh, gender bending and he he um, this BBC reporter approached him in a cafe and but uh, well, he just dreamt up this idea of that I think I forget the exact name of it but something like the the League for Protection of <laughs> But yeah, so uh, so the, he appears on the, he appears on TV with this completely non-existent organisation, this this society for the protection of long-haired men, and uh, and writes this kind of you know thing for quite a while. Uh, and I'm not sure if the BBC were kind of sort of half knew that it was all right. bullshit <laughs> and just thought it was a good story. But you know, there was a protest about uh, 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 some pop program where they supposedly. They would have to cut their hair. Him and his band would have to cut their hair if they wanted to appear appear on it. So there was like a little demo with placards outside the BBC, and right. they sort of tried to spin it out for uh, for quite a while. So that's like 1964, I think. And uh, you know, uh, other things that he sort of, um, you know, he, he in a way he kind of wrote, tried to sort of. Make publicity hay out of the sort of arts lab movement that he was involved in, which is this sort of experimental art centres very big in the counterculture. Right. He became the the public representative of the one that he started in uh, in South London, and uh, then um, you know the famous uh, "I'm gay" statement. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gay and always have been. Is yeah. What said. Seems to have been quite an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> uh, He's and was culturally, Yeah, uh, see. very he's it was very, yeah, very, very well-timed and uh, very well sort of um, placed in terms of he gave it to, you know, the, what was then the biggest music paper, Melody Maker. Right. And made a big splash with it. Um, and it you know, the quote travelled far and wide and it was picked up by newspapers and, uh, you know, other music papers and, and sort of, you know, non-music newspapers as well. And... Um, really kind of kick started his whole career um, in terms of um, becoming a figure that people talked about and discussed as if he was like a, right. a, a zeitgeist figure you know uh, sort of representing some new sensibility of the seventies
1: you so, I mean I get a sense that both he and Mark Boland are just expert at. Um, stringing the media along and also the big difference between England and the United States is that you, you had this weekly music press that they yeah. they got to fill the pages every week, there was never anything like that here I don't I think I the,
2: the Rolling Stone came out every two weeks right. that was about as close as got and you had local you know, weekly yeah. papers, but it was a lot more diffused there was something about the centralising function of the British Music Press there were four music papers yeah, about every week and such a hothouse kind of competition between the papers to get stories. And um, so when, when Mark Bowen blew up, you know, it was just like every week the papers had to have a story on him. They even did a, f- a feature on his publicist, BP Fallon, who was a really interesting dude. He was uh, like a real charismatic uh, guy who'd uh, got him, I think he'd been involved in the whole bed piece thing that John Lennon. And Yoko had done, but uh, you know it was like just constant coverage of these people. And Bolan was very much like uh, the king of the the bullshit. Right. So, you know, he was had a constant stream of of things he was supposedly doing, like he was going to make a movie with Fellini, there was going to be a, um, <laughs> it
1: was just, he was despite
2: up. having only had a top ten hit with Banger Gong, get it on in the US he talked about how there was going to be a 36 episode cartoon series of him in the States in the style of the Jackson 5 cartoon you know, he would just come out, you know, he had written six science fiction novels, he would just invent this bullshit um, and none of these things ever transpired but it was, it was part of uh, Yeah, I, kind of, I think he kind of Genuinely, in the moment, thought he was going to be doing these things, or you know, the desire to do them was almost as good as the reality of doing them. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know, these were these were still great sort of copy, copy generating machines, as was Roxy Music and and Eno. Uh, you, know, you know, they were very much um, uh, loved by journalists, and journalists kind of um, kind of were complicit. Uh, or in cahoots in the presenting this image of Roxy music uh, they always talked about how the band was staying in a in a in, a, in like you know the, the image of Roxy was this group who were living this life of chic and elegance and this right. fabulous dream world of sort of ethete aristocratic existence so the stories always were like the interview always took place like in a four star hotel right champagne was being poured you know um and uh then Eno you know, became like this cult figure where uh, a lot of the problems in Roxy Music were that Eno was being interviewed separately and just giving these great quotes about all these wacky theories, you know. Brian Ferry uh, said, you know, one of the reasons Eno had to go was that he was tired of picking up the music papers and there was Eno talking, being interviewed right. uh, as, you know, a key member of Roxy Music but talking about recording the sound of earthworms or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so a typical Eno... Um, projects and, and uh, fanciful things. You know, nothing to do with what you know. This right. Couldn't have been further from what Brian Ferry' uh, agenda was, which was to be like the Noel Coward of the 1970s. You, you
1: mentioned Eno's uh, Eno's outfits. He's got these things like. Uh, Jumpsuits with frilly things up here, and he's, he said that he's part of part of the reason he had those is because he's just standing there playing the keyboard, <laughs> going like this. So he's like, I need things to accentuate, yeah. like
2: each move that I'm doing. Yeah, there was very very minimal gestures it's involved correct. in these EMS Cynthia. But I mean, that's wouldn't, why wouldn't.
1: you put that's why you put a mask on on, on stage too, I
2: suppose. He had right. his girlfriend then was an artist called uh, Carol Nickel, I think, and she would help him make these costumes they are actually kind of similar to the costumes Gary Glitter wore which were like sort of virtually had to be thrown away after one use kind of costumes right but Brian also had um, you know he also had elements um, like the feathers were you know an important thing uh, these sort of plumes of feathers that were like kind of references that's why you know that's why I sort of differentiate glam between from glam and glamour, as we can't we conventionally understand it in the sort of, uh, you know, movie star to Kald- Kardashian's sense right. of glamour. Um, because, you know, we would have things like the feathers. you would have these sort of feathers that are very much like a reference to 1930s Hollywood glamour to, um, it, you know, Marlena Dietrich would wear, you know, dresses that were com- basically made of the plumage of 140 birds who'd died for her. Splendor, you know, Splendour. Uh, or Brian Ferry would wear these, um, you know, tiger or leopard patch fur elements, but it was done in a way that wasn't just a, a straightforward duplication of Hollywood. It was sort of like a mishmash. Ferry would have the quiff, the rockabilly quiff, sort of mish, mishmash with this Hollywood elements. And it was... Um, so, yeah, yeah. glam, I, I think of it as like, a, you know, an absurdist... An absurdist travesty of glamour, as much as a straightforward right. attempt to be glamorous. You know, I mean, it's even it's Bowie kind of looks pretty wacky, doesn't he? In some of these he's garments he's like wearing, They're not, it's not—it's uh, not Cary Grant, it's not. Uh, no,
1: it's, it's yeah. closer to what Elvis was wearing. Before. Yeah. But you—you—you um, you, you mentioned uh, um, Brian Thayer. you seem to be. <laughs> Turned off at the point at which he, he starts um, wearing a white tuxedo jacket, and I yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, it seems like Brian Therick kind of turned into that, that what started as something ironic uh, became uh, I don't know later in life is, is what he kind of turned yeah, into. You say he's think, the first think, rock star to join the aristocracy.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think I think he always you know he came from a very uh, extremely working class background in the north of England um, his dad was um, initially a farm labourer and then he worked in coal mines as the guy who looked after the pit ponies so you know he's going to the bowels of the earth with these poor animals um, they lived in, you know they were quite poor, they had an outside toilet and they had to use chopped up newspaper as toilet paper I mean, this is Ferry's background so for him the fantasy of leaving that behind for this world of, of chic and elegance and aesthetic, perfect design and perfect clothing and perfect, uh, girlfriends, um, it was just like, you know, a very deep, potent desire, and he loved, he loved Hollywood and going to the movies, uh, the picture palaces, um, precisely because of this fantasy escape from his origins and his surroundings. Right. And, um, so... It, it is, you know, the imagery of aristocracy and of the, you know, the fine things of life and elegance and, and all these things in Roxy. It is ironic, but I think there's a real deep desire for it on on, um, on Brian Ferry's part. He really wants to join the aristocracy, right. for real. And so, you know, the lines there are lines in the Roxy, Roxy songs like um, he says something like, uh, "Old money's better than new." Uh, which seems very witty and clever when you hear on the first, I come with the first or second album, but he actually, you know, actually thought that was true. All money is better than you, and he ended up marrying someone from the British upper class, right? Putting their children down for Eton, you know, the top private school in the country, and um, raising these boys who grew up to be sort of virulent defenders of fox hunting. Yeah, and one of them actually disrupted the House of Commons uh, to protest because the Labour government. You know, wanted to abolish fox hunting, and he he, dis- he came in and disrupted parliamentary proceedings, um, and they're nicknamed the feral the feral fairies. Right. these boys, Ot- Otis and uh, I can't remember the name of the one Isaac, I think, is the other one, uh, named after soul singers, I think. Otis. Oh, really? No. Isaac, which is a nice touch. Um, yeah. So you know, so if, um, I think the turning point, as you say, is, the, is when he puts on the white. Tuxedo on the on the cover of another time, another place. The uh, right second solo album of cover cover albums of cover songs, and um, that seems to be sort of when. So the first two, first two or three Roxy albums, the look is quite, as I say, quite absurdist, cartoon, throwing all these things together. But then gradually he starts dressing more in these sort of masculine archetypes. Like he's got a GI look. He's right. got like, um, there's one bit look where it's a, a tad Nazi, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, there's a sort of <laughs> big he gold likes, eagle li- behind he, the stage, yeah. you know, and he's got a little bit of a Hitler part in his hair. And I think he has jog on and a, I don't know if he has a whip, but you know, this is, it's kind of, there's a gaucho look as well,
1: which he was very mocked, right. mocked by. Right. Right. Uh, the uh, Let's Stick Together, he's yeah. got that. That was my first experience. And then he has the, tuxi-
2: really? you know, the tuxedo. Uh, And he's by the swimming pool with the cigarette. And that seems to be the point at which he does sort of almost unironically collapse into this... uh, What he becomes for the rest of his life is this debonair, you know, he's very debonair, he's crooning... A lot of the weirdness of his voice on those early records goes. It's much smooth, smoothed out Yeah, it's
1: it's amazing prune, to, to watch like? The, like those early videos of him, and he's there's there's something just about his facial expression that he's that he's playing he's playing a role. Obviously, again, he's sort of not yeah. a, not just a rock singer. He's like <laughs> yeah, uh, you, and you come back to him late in the book. You come back to um, Avalon, yeah, which you said is. Uh, literally the sound of money which i think is a great des- a yeah. great description of that because it's a yeah. beautiful record it's, fa- yeah. it's a fantastic record but it is so like you put that on it's just like yes it,
2: yeah it, it, it's it's a bit of you know it's a i think it's a gorgeous record i mean it's like uh, and, and a lot of people uh seem to particularly love that that record it's um the production uh, mixing you know the, Bob Mountain, yeah. yeah uh But it is, you know, if you compare it to um, the first couple of Roxy albums, where it's so jagged, it's so weird. What the the mishmash of different influences and these players uh,
1: who are all free to express themselves and yeah, Avalon's like the band are not even there.
2: Yeah, poor old Andy McKay and and Phil Manzanera just kind of like reduced to the level of session musicians. And then the next album, the first solo album by Brian Ferry, he dispenses with them. And um yeah, it's a bit sad. But you know, it's a it is a great record more than this. Avalon's gorgeous I mean I my 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 own feeling about it was that he was trying to sort of show to Eno you know, that he could do ambient music, you know, he could he could beat on land and music for airports at its own game. Right.
1: Um, um the other thing I was watching today was some, some Gary Glitter videos. I'm if I, there should be a trigger warning. I'm going to talk about Gary Glitter now. Who um, oh, I learned in your book is the other names he was considering Terry Tinsel, yeah. Stanley Sparkle, yeah. Horace Hydrogen before he set it on, <laughs> yeah. on Gary uh, Glitter. The
2: name, the name really came about, um, he was hanging out with these showbiz pals. He had like a, he'd been involved on a big TV show in the 60s called Ready Steady Go. He was like the warm up guy. So he's friends with all these music biz. TV world people, and they were all shoot, shooting the shit and having a laugh at what would be the most ridiculous name for a, a pop star, and they were kind of thinking back to this phase in the late 50s when rock and roll first arrived in Britain, and you have these Svengali's, there was this guy called Larry Parnes who had all these people and gave them names like Billy Fury Vince Eager, Duff Duff Power or Duffy Power, I mean, Marty Wilde they all had these sort of cartoon names not their real names they all called names like Reginald Hilda uh, yeah yeah, know, yeah Reginald right. not <laughs> Reginald Dwight that's helpful, but, you yeah. know, that, that kind of name you know uh, humdrum names and so they were given these cartoons sort of Persona names And so that was what they were sort of having fun with That idea um, And Gary Glitter is actually the most sensible Of all those names really At least it feels like that doesn't it you know, yes. Much better than Terry Tinsel And that sort of sticked as his, his nickname For about a couple of years before he actually became Gary Glitter the, the artist The, the persona um, And what the, what the record that he Became that with um, It's called Rock and Roll Right. And it's sort of harking back to you know the fifties, uh, but it's also like a radically brutal reinvention of. of yeah, rock it's and like rock. A, it an does, early
1: early yeah. use of of looping, almost pro- proto sampler. That's a, that's yeah. a, one of my favorite passages in the book. You talk about the the making of that song. Yeah, yeah I mean it was a record that um, it, which starts with an accident. It starts okay. with David Essex not showing up to the session, yeah. just like say um Rock Your Baby she started with Gwen McCrae not showing up to a oh, session great. and instead yeah. someone said George McCrae sings this. Yeah, but, yeah, he
2: didn't he was supposed to come in and make a track uh with Mike Leander, the producer, and he couldn't make it. And so Gary Glacia happened to be hanging around so he said let's go in and try and finally you know, he'd been struggling for over a decade to be a pop star and let's finally see what we can come up with. And um the record was, you know, rock and roll part. 1 and 2 is is entirely a studio construction, every instrument on it is played by Mike Leander he drummed uh, and then looped the drums and overlaid hand claps and like 30 hand claps 30 tracks of hand claps something like that, or maybe 16 it was a lot anyway And um, layered the guitars, did all these kind of weird uh, engineering effects and created this thing that you know, was really a studio construction, and although it references rock and has guitar and and these pounding drums, it's much more like a disco record in a lot of ways. Um, and actually, it was a success in the discos. That's how it became a hit. It built very gradually. D- get, disco and, and and
1: disco in the European sense. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk like, about that. Yeah, too.
2: yeah. Yep. it's like it's like um, in the early seventies. In the sixties, discos had been like a thing, you know, like you know, like that scene in every sixties movie where you have the people jiving, looking very elegant and cool, and like there was like a few in London, a few in Paris, a couple in New York. But by the early seventies, they had spread to be in every um, every sort of decent-sized town in the UK, and they were really where a lot of records broke. Uh, But at that time, it was before disco as we understand it, like you know, black music before. Van McCoy and before uh, Gloria Gaynor and that stuff. This was like you know glam records, basically stomping, very drum-heavy records by The Sweet and Gary Glitter and Susie Quattro and all those groups that people talked about them as being disco right. hits.
1: So people going to to these instead yeah. of going to see some local band playing.
2: Yeah, in the, just in, just the, in, the si- in the in the in the sixties. You know, if you wanted, say, if you're having a party, a wedding, or something, you would get a band, and you get the band would play the top forty. Uh, but by the early '70s, um, you had the discos like as places to go, but also you had mobile discos had replaced bands uh, uh, for weddings, pub functions, sports events. So there was actually a new, a new kind of market had emerged, uh, or a new field in which you could break records, and that's what um, Gary Glitter's record company, Bell Records, did. With rock and roll, part one and
1: part two, yeah. they they broke it in the clubs. So oh, right, that? didn't you said yeah. it didn't get any radio play until yeah. uh, until this so. this, pen, this demand from kids yeah. getting clubs. Yeah. You mentioned that people people wrongly assumed that Gary Glitter was gay. No, no. when i was a kid uh, living in australia there was this australian comedian norman gunston if you know who that is no i don't know he's sort of like Ali g it's like he put on this character he claimed he was from wollongong and he's just like a complete idiot that interviews celebrities yeah. and they don't know what the hell to make of him he's <laughs> anyway i remember this as as a kid he's asking Gary glitter when you were little did you dress up in your mum's clothes and Garrick Ledger just looks at him and says, "Have you ever been sued?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's in jail now. Uh, yes. Right? Should we um, open this up to any questions, yeah, maybe? Let's, we let's do that. a while, haven't we? There's I'm back there. Um, this is in reference to
0: uh, one of your earlier books. We start again, and also the interviews I went into, which, by the way, some of my favorite books of all time. Oh, thank it's you. Certainly life-changing. Um, you repeatedly reference, um, especially in the post-punk era, that there were certain people, uh, Ian McCullough from Echo and the Bunnymen, for example, who saw people like David Bowie on television and said, that's it. That's what I want to be. That's how I want to move on in this world. Mm. Um, it seems like you know, the musical landscape in the last 40 years has changed so much that you know rock music uh, doesn't have the same sort of ability to, to catch you know, young people, to, you know, for people to have a, uh, to, to see something like that. You know, for me growing up to, in New York, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, for me it was hip-hop, you know, those were the people who were like, oh man, I'm mm. going to freak it like that, I want to look like that. Well, why do you think that is? Now, how do you go from something where, like, Bowie can just, you know, be out like a beacon to so many young people, and then inspire an entire generation to change music, whereas, you know, some 40 years later, in the same... General genre, you don't have that same sort of sticking power, that same sort of wow. They'd have to look up from their iPhones. Well,
2: I don't know if that's completely true. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned hip-hop, I think that a lot of people who, you know, uh, (coughs) probably look to people like, you know, Kanye West or Drake and think, I'd like to be that. I don't know if um, it has, you know, if it has the same kind of um, artistic or spir- you know, spiritual effect that Bowie had on people, but they certainly see someone who um, is living a life they'd like to le- live, in, this sort of like a you know, uh, like a transmedia star. In the case of uh, of Kanye, who is trying to do all these, you know, trying to be like a a mogul of some kind. Um, I don't know. I mean, my, you know, my my daughter is intensely interested in pop music. I don't know if it's going to have the same kind of psyche moulding effect that it had on me, but she, you know, she very much watches it all the time. She, you know, she uh, she loves to dance. Uh, she loves to watch these videos. For her, it's an audio-visual thing. Again, it's all. She she never listens to music on its own. She always watches it, and. Um, that's had an interesting effect on the way she dances, which is she only dances for an audience. The idea that you would, you know, she dances for us to look at or her friends. She would never. The idea of dancing in a crowd, in the way that you know people do in, in disco or in, in rave culture that I was involved in, anonymously with no one looking at them. It's like a completely spectacular uh, um, performance-oriented idea of dancing. Where you're not losing yourself in in a in a crowd um, but i don't know i don't know i wouldn't i, w- I wouldn't I'd be hesitate to write off pop music uh, completely as a thing where people form their identities through it. I just think it has more competition I think there are so many other things that people um are excited about whether it's games or social media or uh Apps or you know, there, there's so many things that people, uh, other things that people seem to get worked up about. Even, even like food seems to have yeah. this kind of uh, rock and roll like excitement about it. You know, uh, eating in unusual places, in knowing about things before other people. Uh, you know, um, it, there seems to be a lot more uh, claims on on young people's um, psyches in terms of what's forming their identities you know there doesn't seem to be that sort of i mean when i grew up people would go to war in the streets over their subcultural affiliations you know it was it was that serious being you know being into two tone versus being into uh rockabilly being into you know these things they were they were you know blood would be shed over these things were well, partly to do with clothes and partly to do with um music um, so uh it does it, there seems to be uh, less of that, but you know people are intensely interested in um, you know what Beyonce's done with her recent music. Um, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's completely the case that there there aren't figures on a par with a Bowie. There's something about, I think Bowie happened to that extent and rock and roll generally because, partly because everything was so culturally denuded, you know. There was, there, there, they, these people were like beacons in a sort of, in what felt like a void, you know. Uh, and now things aren't quite as void-like for a lot of people. You feel a lot more connected to stuff that's going on through your devices. You, there isn't that sort of sense of cultural deprivation.
1: Right, having search for things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And
0: will you speak a lot about the audio-visual audio, component of Glam and Glitter? What did you think of the film Velvet Mind? Did you think Todd Haynes captured what you were trying to do in your book in hindsight?
2: Yeah. Um, I wasn't a massive fan of, of that film. I liked, um, uh, is Tony Nicolette right? Is that her name who did uh, Angie Belly role? Maker? No, the, um, the actress who played... Tony Nicolette. Yeah, Tony Nicolette. I thought she was great as Angie Bowie. I did, I felt the central character wasn't um, quite charismatic enough uh, to sort of be this figure that everyone would be fascinated by. Um, and I felt the music just didn't really cut it and that was uh, really important. But it was definitely an interesting sort of essay uh, about that time from um, and sort of, you know, a good a good attempt to sort of capture some of what Glam was about. Um it was very much oriented to sort of, you know, what people sort call like, some people call like high glam. Like it was d- oriented to the, you know, uh, the Bowie, Roxy, Lou Reed, Iggy sort of axis, where it's more artistic. Whereas in this book, I kind of wanted to sort of stand up for uh, low glam, you know, which is like the lumpen, stomping, uh, you know, younger kids oriented, somewhat brainless uh, <laughs> music. I like the sweet, you know, uh, which I think, you know, is great music and, um, and, uh, it's fun music, but it, you know, the story of how it's made and, and, uh, the, the skill that went into it and the struggles behind it makes it, you know, really interesting. The, you know, Gary Glitter is a pretty, you know, even before the terrible things he's done that have come out recently, it was a pretty strange, aberrant sort of pop fog phenomenon, um, and same with many of the other figures. T Rex, um, uh, it's a pretty strange story, and uh, the, the phenomenon of T rex is, is you know really interesting. But yeah, well, I wasn't like a massive. Well, you, did you like it for a movie? Um, I did. I did. Yeah. Um, I
0: agree that what you. I guess in the United States, we refer to glam glitter. It was really bubblegum. And I wondered where, also where the Bay City Rollers and the Buggle is mm. and HR Puff stuff fit in with what right. we we're talking about. Because your introduction really captures, zooms in on the appeal that these were for children. Yeah. Children were attracted, obviously, they were doing something for children. It yeah. all kind of came out with the gay glitter yeah. scandal, but yeah. that was deliberate. But, um, <laughs> uh. Do you have a Bay city rollers
2: um, opinion about where they fit in the Um well uh the suite actually were sort of conceived as um as a bubblegum band, and, and then the people initially they were like meant to be like a sort of British version of the arches, but actually real people as opposed to a cartoon and so bubble you know that record sugar uh, sugar sugar right that's yeah the, that's the song that was a that was really you know it was like number one for nine weeks. Uh, in England, I think, and so the people behind the suite were very much like, uh, we want to do this, and uh, they molded this group, who secretly all wanted to be Deep Purple. They wanted to be a credible hard rock band. So that's an interesting struggle in itself. You have the manipulators who want them to be the Archies, and then the band desperately trying to be Deep Purple, and the tension produces these great sort of songs that are like half rock and half pop. You know, they really are quite great hard rock records, but they've got this shiny polish them. But yeah, I I felt there was a difference between um, I don't really write about David Cassidy or the basic Rollers or those kind of groups because I felt or the the Osmonds because I felt like there were too many of the the sort of key aspects of uh, glam weren't really there you know, the absurdist look wasn't really there with David Cassidy or Sexual ones, ambiguity sexual ambiguity I also felt like with, with a lot, one of the things I felt was like kind of defining of glam was almost like an emotional tenor, which is like hysteria, like hysteria you know like, uh, you know the sweet songs are just the lyric scenarios are just ludicrous scenarios just for the generation of this vibe of hysteria like you know blockbuster. there's this super villain called Buster who must be blocked and there's like you know uh, hellraiser she 's a natural-born raver, uh, hysterical. Her eyes are like hysterical danger signs, flashing warnings at you. You know, every song is like this shrieking, a uh, crazy scenario. Uh, teenage Rampage, Ballroom Blitz. Uh, teenage Rampage, when, when the songwriters, uh, Nikki Chin and... Um, Mike, uh, Chapman. Mike Chapman. Yes, thank you. Uh, presented it to the band they said here's the Nuremberg rally you know, <laughs> and that's even before the producer did his work with it you know it's this stop, you know it's the, it's the kids are taking over, taking over the country they're going to be burning things down and writing constitutions and so it's this hysterical fantasy of the, of the, of the kids storming the citadels of power and taking over the country so <coughs> a lot, a lot, you know Gary Glitter Records um, Queen who I think are sort of fellow travellers with Glam Sparks, so of <coughs> these groups it's this tone of hysteria, you know. And you don't really get that to the same extent, I don't think, with the more purely teen pop groups. Uh who some of them yeah, I like like some of David Cassidy's tunes, but um I don't I I felt like they were kind of a bit more uh, mild. I don't Sean know. Cassidy appears in the book, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember uh, where. Apparently, uh, David Cassidy's brother had this obsession with Iggy pop and wanted to be like mm. a an Iggy Pop would like roll around in glass and stuff Sean <laughs> and uh, sure Sean pretty, yeah. right. anyone else
0: you touched on the uh, high glam versus low glam the art school being rock yeah. music and the more yavish uh, Slade yeah I, was that uh a uh, economic, socio-economic divide in in glam somewhat, some the college students versus those who grew up in council council states and didn't.
2: Uh, um, not in that, not in a precise way, because you know Brian Ferry grew up in poverty greater than what Slade did, I think, and um, but he went then he went to sort of a fine art uh, college, at, um, so he he sort of, uh, I guess, in bourgeois himself through that. um But Bowie is often said to have gone to art school but he didn't. He kind of came from a sort of zone in uh, British society that's kind of you know, is it upper working class, lower middle class, it's ambiguous. I don't think they're the clear cut in terms of the band composition, I don't think the class things are that clear cut but I I suppose the the targeting of the music in a way uh, is more class inflected. So, you know, you would get uh, yeah, Bowie was a appealing to actually to a, uh, an audience who actually did value albums and the, the album length experience and uh, they weren't just all about singles he kind of had a foot in the singles and the albums camp and uh, that's a, I guess a more collegiate kind of sensibility um, uh, Slade were very much like aiming for the working class audience and and for the kind of the teenagers and the working class audience that were Neglected during this period of albums, and and uh, you know when the students took over, and then their manager said that, um, you know, they said there's a their manager Chaz Chandler said uh, there's a gap in the market that Slade have found, which is for the the wage packet audience, um, which mean you know I mean I'm I'm sure it's has been the same in this country, but basically that means like people who work in a the factory they don't they don't get money going to their bank account they get an envelope with cash in because they don't have a bank account you know they, they live at home with their parents they um, you know they give half the money out of the envelope to their parents their mother probably and the rest they spend on beer and records and clothes so it's was like a, a, you know a working class audience that Slade found that were just looking for music to go crazy to and to dance to and that was what their whole Slade's whole orientation was was this sort of rowdy so, high-spirited, rowdy music um, to go mental to, um, and often, uh, you know, often there's quite a lot of damage at slave concerts. There was like,
0: mm.
2: you know, they had to pay a bill to the promoter. They had to pay like five hundred pounds or something to the promoter because so many well, the fixtures were damaged, but no one was hurt. There was no violence. It was just like high-spirited uh, rowdiness.
0: <coughs> yeah. Uh, um, I was thinking about uh, the way you were describing glam and like two groups that are, American groups that are very, on one level, very glam, but rarely associated with it would be like Alice Cooper or Kiss, who, you know, the iconography, the sound even, but yet, Mm. whether it's the macho element or what, and I was curious if they had any crossover appeal to the British glam audience, did they have any... Or was that just
2: wholly separate? Um, well, the Alice Cooper, I think, were actually, for a moment, they were actually bigger in Britain mm-hmm. than in America. I mean, they had a number one hit with schools out, um, elected was like number six. They they, they were huge. Um, and I, I have a whole chapter on Alice Cooper, and I think they're very much part didn't of
0: it. Want to apologize if I
2: apologize, they have read the book yet. Yeah, All right, no, that's fine. <laughs> but <laughs> but so nothing, nothing on out. kids. Uh, I have a tiny bit on kiss yeah. i i mainly um, I, I mainly for some reason I thought of them more as like heavy metal or their own little movement you know, and they have origins they were around the same you know they came out the same scene as the New York dolls, but I felt like there wasn 't enough you know there 's the makeup but it 's like it's hideous makeup, isn't it? It's ghastly makeup. And it's nothing to do with, like, the make. Like, Bowie was an expert at makeup. He studied with a master cosmetician, a French guy whose name I'm blanking on. But, you know, but Bowie could talk at great length about the right base to use and how to apply, you know, your mascara and how he did the thing like that. But Kiss just shoved it on with a trowel, didn't they? And it's, it's not designed to look exquisite or androgynous. It's designed to look... Um, uh, gross, I think, and upsetting. So um, I didn't feel I, d- I, f- I felt like I could get away without writing much about well, I Kiss. They have a link, they have a link, and, and um, uh, I perversely have Kiss appear in my book later in the end bit. There's a whole bit where I look at sort of the, ar- the aftershocks of glam in the 80s and 90s, and I perversely have uh, Kiss appear mainly. That moment when they take their makeup off. Right. And I say this is very badly timed because that's exactly when Twisted Sister and Mm -hmm. Motley Crue are piling the makeup on. And, you know, it's like one of the worst timed decisions. Not that it affected their career, of course, they were already massive, but, you know.
0: And kind of timed, sorry, just to follow up on that, because you mentioned the 80s, and it does seem like uh, the American version of the land is more with some elements of androgyny while reaffirming its heterosexuality. Like
1: loudly, yeah. Like kispy, like, right? when well, you talk about the hair. The hair metal bands that way too. Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the it's is
0: it American, Like, is it, do you think there's an element of like something about Britain versus America that allows for like that demands
2: that? Or? Uh, well, I think uh, in Britain there's probably a bit more kind of camp in and drag right in the mainstream of the culture. It's less of a of an underground uh, culture. We had some very big mainstream stars in Britain uh, who are on TV who were uh, female impersonators like uh, Danny LaRue was like a huge star um, it's a more generalised thing in British culture uh, you know it doesn't take a lot to make an Englishman put women's clothing on for all kinds of reasons and uh, there's loads and loads of photos of Keith Moon with women's clothing on He's, he had an actual uh, a compulsion to to do it more for comedy effect, I think, than actual, you know, uh, to look uh, to feel lovely and exquisite in them. But um, uh, it's 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 uh, androgyny seems to be a bigger part of British culture, nearer the mainstream, anyway. You know, whether it's you know the Rolling Stones were quite androgynous in their look, uh, Oscar Wilde, you know the de- the dandies of uh, the Bright Young Things of uh, the 1920s and you know that sort of world that Elon Wall wrote about um, a certain kind of a, uh, gender fluidity on the part of men seems to be sort of nearer the mainstream than it was in America so yeah you're right when, when, when glam is becomes a th- glam metal you know uh, becomes this thing in the 80s in America um, you know, there's tons of makeup being used and, and uh, more artfully than Kiss used it and the hair is blow dried and beautifully conditioned uh, and um, but yeah that th- that's where it ends really it's like the actual attitudes are, are quite hetero sexist and rampantly <coughs> hetero really yeah
0: so put in
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, Harris had kind of got that, didn't they? That sort of thing they had, or at least uh, the singer had from the Stones, didn't he? That kind of. I
0: think it's and from the New York
2: Dolls. Oh, yeah. Are yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. I mean, yeah. Down to the like, things yeah. they would tie around the, the, the microwaves. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, he's definitely in that rock and roll dandy peacock kind of thing, isn't he, uh, Stephen Tyler? Sh-
1: should we take one more? Then you, you have to sign some books, yeah. don't you? This gentleman um, here.
0: I- did you toy at all with going more in depth into the aftershocks? Because like, right. I think a band's like Suede,
2: Paul. Yeah, the, they, they, the amazing they, Britpop era. They, they they get you know, Suede in there. Um, I thought you know with the with the aftershocks, um, it was already quite a long book. But yeah, at <laughs> that point, I thought. Um, Poor Dean's had to. No, no, to I, enjoyed, it. I enjoyed. I
1: enjoyed <laughs> the aftershocks, uh, but, but yeah, but, there's but um, so much you I can thought, do. I thought, you know
2: what? Rather than try and mention every everything, um, I just would take things that were like. It was all like a. I saw it like almost like a slideshow, like, and you have snapshots of certain people. Like I wouldn't have everything that Susie and the Banshees did, but just key moments that are related to their debts to glam and how they invented goth couple of things that Prince did not the whole span of his career um, just sort of jump around have fun with it make it the most juicy thing so I, d- I have like one thing on Suede where I talk about their, just for their first impact on the UK scene uh, with the drowners um, uh, I, didn't bo- I didn't bother with Pulp as um, much as I love them I love, I love Pulp uh, there was a there were certain groups that I really liked like this group Denim which was started by Lawrence, Lawrence from Felt yeah. which is he actually worked with the Glitter Band which is the live band that Glitter had. He, there are songs about the seventies great hilarious songs like The Osmonds yeah that's a great song uh, Middle of the Road you know yeah. these brilliant sort of meta rock songs that are almost acts of rock criticism as much as their great tunes. Um, but I yeah. just thought I'll, I'll you know I'll skip that I'll just I'll, you know I'll just do Marilyn Manson on, in this you know I, I picked the things that were the most um outlandish or extreme or conceptually uh, vivid you know like you know lady gaga has all these great quotes about fame about mad you know the madness of fame and how she wants people to be psychotic and pursue their the you know act like their stars before they're stars i thought that's something i can run with thematically um so uh yeah, they're, 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 I tended not to be so interested in glam inheritors who took the substance of the sound, if you know what I mean. Like right now there's a really fun Italian group called uh, Guida who have the, got the sound of, of the Slade and that era down pat. If you look them up on YouTube, they've got this great stompy sound. They have the boots and everything. And um, But the, the actual literal sort of uh, revival. of of glamor glitter sounds I wasn't so interested in. It was more like the ideas and the provocations of that era that I kind of pursued.
0: All right, well, uh, thank
2: you very much. Yeah. Thanks to Skylight for uh, hosting and, and Dean for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for coming.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.